You're listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, a proud part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Everybody across the land, here's a special from SequelCast, though I don't know what it's gonna be about. Maybe Woody Allen, maybe Spike Lee, maybe Technicolor, maybe 3D, or maybe Hello and welcome to SequelCast Special, a show about whatever we damn please. Uh, I'm your host, Matt bradley Shurgi. This time around, the topic is what our viewing habits have been like during this COVID-19 pandemic. It, it's really, you know, people tend to have more time because they can't go out and do as many activities. And some people have been going back to nostalgia. Some people have been watching movies about pandemics. Uh, I think we'll kind of talk about what, what we've been doing here as the, the host of SequelCast too uh, with me is thrasher i'll destroy her and death stalker too and alex oh hi i did a japanese introduction because i like japanese movies got it yeah 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 so um i, I guess we'll just kind of go around taking turns talking about some stuff we've watched i you know the first thing i had wanted to do is i Wanted to feel, watch something I thought was a comfort movie as a kid. And that can be kind of disappointing sometimes because a lot of times it doesn't show up or it doesn't stand up. But this one, it was on Disney Plus and it actually, it's still a pretty good movie. It's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Ooh. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, you know, rewatching it, I, I did notice that um, the, the accent for Eddie Valiant isn't the best, but it, it's fine. Uh, on a recent interview, I was learning that Eddie Murphy was offered the lead role in Who Framed Roger Rabbit as Eddie Valiant, and he turned it down. Yeah, because really? he said, "I'm not going to be in some cartoon thing. This is stupid." And then he saw it, and, and then he saw it with his kids on the premiere night, and he's like, "I'm an idiot." And so, you know, uh, a bit after that, he took the the Mulan uh, Mushu role as the dragon, mm-hmm. he also and, did and then. DJs. Uh, of course, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. DJs, which is a went on for several seasons. Um, although I don't think he was the voice for all the seasons, right? He, he, he was did the, the first voice, few. He was the voice of the superintendent in the first season. He yeah. did not do the voice in the remaining two. Oh wow! Correctly. Okay. But I think his brother like Charlie did. Good. Oh, interesting. That makes yeah. sense. Yep. And um. I mean, yeah, I was I was going somewhere there. I can't quite remember, but anyhow, yeah. And oh, with the Eddie Murphy stuff, you know, of course he did the the donkey and Shrek, was was the more successful um, kind of thing so, with the gazillion sequels. And Shrek is getting re- rebooted apparently. So oh boy, um, would he you have been the Bob Hoskins character, or what was that? Would would Eddie Murphy have been Bob Hoskins' character? That, that's what he was implying. Although elsewhere, yeah. I've read that Eddie Murphy was going to be the voice of the taxi cab. But I think in the eighties, 
I mean, Eddie Murphy was just so huge that I, think I would, I would think he would have been the lead. Um, I don't think he would have used a New York accent. Mm. I think, I don't know if he would have played it as more of a straight man or not, um, yeah. which is something Hoskins, I think, does well. But I, I, I've also been reading, speaking of that, I've been reading the novel, uh, Who Censored Roger Rabbit, that it's oh, based yeah. on. And it's quite violent and quite different. Like, Roger wow. Rabbit gets shot in the back of the head in his, like, hotel room. I mean, it's um, a real noir, that novel. Yes, That's yes. And, and he, uh, the author, uh, Gary Wolf, has done uh, a few follow-ups. And he has, a sweet, he has a sweetheart deal with Disney to use the animated like likeness of those characters, of Roger Rabbit and Jessica Rabbit, on the covers of whatever spinoffs he does. Oh, very cool. Which is something they wouldn't grant today. Uh, Thrasher. So I've been, uh, so the, the, the pandemic has really, at least, or at least the stress of the pandemic has really sort of s- screwed up my sleep schedule. So very often if I can't get to sleep, I will just go downstairs and I'll watch one or two episodes of something. Uh, and this led to me in the first half of the pandemic, you know what? That's too hopeful. The first eighth of the pandemic, um, that's what led me to rewatching the entirety of the sci-fi channel series from 2001, uh, black scorpion. This is not a good show, but it is based on a series of movies. So there were sequels. So maybe we'll cover the movies one day, but the the short of it is that Roger Corman in like the, uh, mid nineties, as superheroes were getting big, decided to do what he always does and make his own superhero film, uh, after the fantastic four. And so they created essentially a woman Batman named the, the black scorpion who has a fancy car, who has gadgets and who beats the shit out of people in a crime ridden city. Um, and, the movies did so well. The movies did really great overseas. And so a German TV studio tried to buy the rights to Black Scorpion from Roger Corman so they could do their own series. And Roger Corman says, no, I'll do the series myself and I'll sell it internationally. Uh, so in America, it aired on the Sci-Fi Channel. It is not a good series, but it is such a throwback to the way superheroes were treated in media um, before Tim Burton kind of revive them as a source of like big budget film franchises. So here's a question. Is it the same actress as in the movies or no? Uh, no, it's a different actress. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, Dar- Darcy Walker, the black scorpion is played by uh, Michelle Lintel in the series. Although uh, the villain uh, aftershock from the movies, I believe it is played by the uh, uh, Sherry Rose. I believe that is played by the same uh, actress. Uh, but it's it's what's fascinating about this series because again, it's not very good. It's it's very formal. So she inevitably inevitably her villains always die because she kills them or they're destroyed by their own doomsday machine. But that's mm-hmm. okay because there's a scientist named Doctor Phoenix who has a cloning machine. So anytime they want to bring back a villain, they just arbitrarily have him produce a clone of that villain. So Mm. it really kind of fucks with the stakes of the series. But what's interesting is the guest stars who appear on this series. Adam West has a recurring guest spot as the villain breathtaker. Mm. And it's really neat to see Adam West play the villain. He does sort of, he talks in that stilted Batman 66 way, but injects some real menace into it. Uh, also, uh, and th- this I will say is possibly one of the only good episodes, and mm-hmm. it's because of the guest star. Uh, Frank Gorshin, who played the Riddler Ooh. in the 1960s Batman, yep. 
he plays the time-based villain clockwise. And he, not only does he put in a great performance and not only does like it play to the strengths of, of sort of campy old style superheroes, like it really does play as a sexy version of the 1960s Batman, but as clockwise, he goes he goes in disguise to several locations as part of his evil plan, and each disguise he plays as a completely different character. And so he does all this amazing voice work and physic and like phys- physicality as he embodies these different personas. Did this go for only one season, or was it longer than that? Uh, it went for only one pretty sizable season. I think it's mm. like twenty two episodes or so. Okay. Um. Yeah, twenty two episodes. I'm. I am sure they could have done more. Uh, instead, uh, it did not get. It did not get renewed. This. This was a. This was a cheap series to make, and and you. You can see every dollar that wasn't spent up on the screen, and and its contemporaries at the Sci Fi Channel were the artistic achievement that was Farscape, the blockbuster achievement that was Stargate, uh, and the my own personal favorite Lex. Uh, so like the, I, I think this was the show that they bought to fill out their schedule and make ends meet because it didn't cost them much money. They did edit a few episodes together and release them as further Black Scorpion sequels after uh, after the series. Oh, interesting. Um, Alex. Um, so there's a lot of instances where someone will like recommend something to me in the big, oh man, this is like the craziest thing you've ever seen, or this is like the most violent, or this is the most twister, this is the most like screwed up or fucked up movie ever. And I, you know, whether it's something like maybe, I don't know, like Scanners or Eraserhead or, I don't know, Man Bites Dog or something like that. And I'm always invariably disappointed by the hype. I've, it's never lived up to like what I'm, you know, what I'm like thinking in my head. And then I saw this movie recently. It's a 1992 anime called uh, Midori. And this is like the first time in my like a recent adult life where I felt like I was like getting away with something I shouldn't be seeing. <laughs> hmm. This is um, it's about like a it's about like a uh, like a preteen girl who gets a um, she's an orphan and she gets uh, basically captured by like a traveling uh, circus freak show and all the horrible things that um, end up happening to her. And then she's kind of rescued by the savior embodied by this magical midget dude whose trick is that he can contort himself to shape like fit inside of like tiny bottles. And he also has powers to, like, deform people and make them explode. And <laughs> this is insane. This is some of the craziest shit I have ever seen in my life. I've probably rewatched this thing, like, three times in the past couple months. And it's, like, freaky, scary, beautiful, disgusting. And it's it goes in all these insane directions that you just do not expect. It's like if Cronenberg had, like, an anime baby with David Lynch and gave it, like, a circus nightmare rework. In the animation style, it's fascinating because I know you guys are more um, animation buffs than I am. This guy did this over a period of like five years independently. So like there's a lot of like cool uh, visual tricks. Like I'll do a lot of like composite images and stuff like that where it's like kind of like a still shot. And then, you know, kind of like um, what's it called? You just kind of go from like panel to panel, not like animate, like not like animatic, but like, you know, someone like you don't see the lips moving, but you hear the dialogue type thing. So, like, there's all these weird, like, uh, corner cutting that gives it this, like, really even more surreal vibe to it. It's one of the most insane things I've ever seen. Um, I think you can watch it on YouTube. Um, It's just called Midori, M-I-D-O-R-I. I Mm. Uh, I found, like, a bootleg Blu-ray on eBay that's functional. 
Um, but this is like one of the wildest things I've ever seen um, in recent years. And I would highly recommend it if you're up for something really twisted and scary and weird and uh, kind of beautiful in its own weirdo way. Have you, have you guys heard of this one? No, I haven't. Although I looked, no. uh, as you're describing it, I looked at some screen grabs. I must have seen clips of this at some point possibly in the early days of the internet, because so many of the images in these screen captures look very familiar to me. Yeah, I think it's been, um, it's definitely got a cult following, and it's kind of got like a, you know, like if you want to see like a, you know, freaky movie, you know, check this one out, um, appeal, you'll probably see it in like YouTube lists of like, you know, scariest anime, you know, lists. But uh, yeah, this is a, I remember I, I saw like a two minute clip on YouTube of, the classic it's called the quote midget freakout scene um and that kind of sold me on it and then after that i've since watched it a few times it's 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 really something else it's yeah it'll it'll it's haunting but it's really a unique and yeah i would definitely recommend uh, how either. many episodes is it oh it's just one standalone thing it was, I, think I it was some kind of like a folk tale that hmm. this dude adapted over the course of like five years and he said basically in an interview like i couldn't really get anyone I guess I didn't want to, anyone to compromise my vision, so I just did it myself. And also, not a lot of people wanted to fund it because it was just so grotesque. <laughs> sure. Um, cool. Yeah. Something else I've been, you know, had some time on my hands. I I did some trials of different uh, streaming services, and really liked the the trial of Shutter. I did. Um, I, I think I've talked about this series before, but it's something I, I think about a lot. I'd like to rewatch. It is the. Uh, series Cursed Films on Shudder, mm. uh, done by Jay Cheel that talks about uh, movies, horror movies that supposedly were cursed, but it also goes into some weird detours of um, people that believe, that pr- practitioners of like curses, and he, he tries to get a film set cursed by a magician at some point, or a, a male witch or something like that. Um, so... It's it it's interesting. It's got renewed for a second season. The episodes on the Crow and the uh, uh, Twilight Zone, um, John Landis segment. Or oh, or so they want this to be the, like an ongoing series. It, it is, yeah. It's a series. Yep. Oh, I it, thought it was it, like a limited run type oh, thing. Like, oh, no, we're just going to do it, these five first movies and. Yeah, it it got a second season, um, and they haven't said what they're going to cover. I wonder if it'll be as as quirky as that first season, like. I'm not quite sure the interviews with people not about the movies works as well, but it also lets you look into a culture that you're not quite familiar with. Um, uh-huh. And I thought that was interesting, but it, yeah, it can be intense, the, but it's good. The coverage on the the crow was pretty comprehensive and thorough. I thought that was really good because I caught a couple of these, the, namely the Twilight Zone crow episodes. Um and yeah, the the it's very comprehensive and it really breaks down the whole Brandon Lee thing. I think it's kind of very definitive. You know, there's a lot of rumors and and speculation right. around it, and I think that's really cool that they actually kind of gave like a definitive and, record where it went down. Yeah, the, there's one on on Poltergeist. I mean, all those movies had stuff going on, and um, yeah. the thing they couldn't confirm, but it seems likely, which is unfortunate. There's a scene like where there's skeleton. There's someone surrounded by skeletons or something like that, mm-hmm. but apparently those were like the actual human corpses bought from India. Yeah, I guess it was human cheaper to actually use cadaver mm-hmm. skeletons, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think the actors were known, let known of that or something. But yeah. It, it's, 
Yeah. Well, it's it's strange how often that comes up because this, yeah. uh, the the original alien uh, was built around a real human skull. Geezer insisted upon this, and that mm. is how they got the human skull. They got it from a medical supplier in India. Uh, and there is a uh, one of the one of the people who worked on that that film. I think it was was Dan, Dan O'Bannon who went on to do Return of the Living Dead. There's a whole a side in Return of the Living Dead at the medical warehouse where he talks about how we get these skeletons from India uh, and they all have perfect teeth. And do you know how hard it is to find an adult skeleton with perfect teeth? If you ask mm. me, they got farms where they're raising people to sell as medical skeletons. And like, it's a really grim scene, but that was wow. his actual suspicion at the time. That was the only way he mm. could figure they were getting skulls, skulls with perfect teeth. That's wild. Yeah, O'Bannon wrote the original screenplay for Alien, which is uh, pretty different from the actual film. But as you mentioned, he also did Return of the Living Dead. He did um, oh some some Lovecraft stuff over the years. I think he he won some award out here right before he died at the Portland uh, Lovecraft Film Festival. But I think he was like on a hospital bed or something and had to accept it remotely. Yeah, his his health had failed. Uh, was the end too bad. Um, but that happens to us all usually. Uh, so, but yeah, otherwise, you know, I think that series is, is interesting getting to try out some of these streaming services. I think I mentioned before, you know, the Criterion service is, is quite good too, but I don't have unlimited funds and it, it's already a pain in the ass to subscribe to as many streaming services as I do. So right. there you go. Uh, Thrasher. So I like to, I, 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 because as a fan of like cult films and B movies, I really make an effort. Any streaming service I have access to, I do try to find some of the most obscure things on it because I love like my 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 goal is to find the stuff that used to air in the middle of the night on cable in the '90s when they were just desperate to fill time. And boy, howdy, did I make a discovery! Uh, I found the 1983. Uh, Lucio Fulci fantasy movie Conquest. Have either oh, of you heard of this? No. Man, the movie is far out, man. This one's freaky. <laughs> oh yeah. It's like it's like a weird like oddly enough has some parallels to Fafford and the Grey Mauser uh, series by Fritz Lieber. But yeah, it's like this guy, you know, leave like there's like a, 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 a wasteland that is being plagued by a naked woman who wears a gold mask, sort of a sexy lady, <laughs> Darth Vader who uses wolf people. And they like damned if they don't make full body wolf people costumes using them to like conquer the world. And so this person leaves this uh, attractive young guy, leaves his, his village to save them, gets involved with this like hunter who has a weird the hunter has a weird morality like he won't kill and eat animals that's wrong but if another hunter kills an animal to eat he will kill the the hunter and then take the meat because the hunter has done wrong but the animal was already dead so it's okay if he eats that's it what, yeah that was a weird thing i i've kind of forgot about the hunter till you mentioned it yeah I, I remember a lot of like you know like mongoloid monster crushing head stuff but yeah, yeah there, there's blood, there's violence, there's sexy magic, there's creepy magic, there's gore. Uh, and then there's a fuck, there's a fucking twist. I'm just gonna, I mean, I like uh, essentially the, our Luke Skywalker character dies, and so Han Solo <laughs> has to finish the film. That's awesome. Two thirds of the way in, our protagonist dies, and it well, keeps going. Yeah, and then the movie keeps uh, going. Love it. 
you said it's a sort of a fantasy. Does it have a lot of like good practical effects? Oh yeah, I mean that, that's the only kind of effects they could have. Three, but yeah, mm-hmm. like like I like the like the 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 wolf people costumes are very Wookie like, but not nearly as sort of expressive or articulated. But I love that. That's something I love about this. You know, they couldn't do the effect well. So, but they're still going to use it because, God damn it, we're going to have wolf people, and so like I love that. I love like I love how campy it looks, and then you know, then I also love how the grotesque violence the wolf people get involved in. Hey, Chris, what's the War Rocket Ajax podcast about? Well, Matt, if we were smart, it'd be about murders, but it's actually about comics. War Rocket Ajax. It's not about murders, but it is weekly on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Hunter, Hunter, you Hakusho. Literary analysis, comparative localization, JoJo references. The works of Yoshihiro Togashi hold a specific kind of magic, and the people who seek to examine their roots and spiritual descendants are known as the Spirit Hunters. Available on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Yeah, I mean, I remember um, I had been kind of a Fulci fan. I think I came close to running out of Felicia Fulci movies, so I think it was on YouTube at the time. I'm, I don't think it's on there now still, and I was just like, Conquest by Lucio Fulci, and it's not a zombie movie, so I'm like, what the hell is this going to be about? And I was just like, I was repulsed, but I, I, I couldn't turn away. It was just so fascinating. Yeah, it's it's intense. There's like, there's a little bit too much of everything. <laughs> yeah, this. definitely. Alex. Let's see. So um, another thing I recently watched, which was really cool, um, is called The Yellow Handkerchief. Uh, it's a Japanese film from 1977. Um, the Twilight Time uh, Blu-ray label had gone under this year, unfortunately. So they were kind of doing like a closeout sale. And I, this was a total, complete blind buy. I just saw that it had Ken Takakura in it. It was like, the you know, kind of like, I guess like uh, you could call him, I don't want to say the Clint Eastwood of Japan, but... Uh, let's say Charles Bronson in Japan, a little more acting shots. Anyhow, so it's about three people who go on this road trip to Hokkaido, and it's like this kind of dorky younger fellow who's in, who's you know trying his hardest to you know court this young lady, and this kind of older hard ass dude played by Ken Takakura. And as the story goes, you just find out more and more about these people, and they have these great arcs. And it's like a imagine if like a like a Vin Vendor's road film had like a Yakuza flourish to it, um, with these really great like backstories told in flashback and it's um such a cool movie it's from 77 and it's like yeah it's got this like really unique brand of like humanism to it where you know this guy's got this really tragic backstory um you know with his wife and it turns out he had recently um been released from prison and then um you know of course he kind of becomes like a mentor to the young guy you know and kind of teaches him you know how to be more of a gentleman and it's like a very sweetly rendered and and very clever made uh road film that's uh it's just such an engaging movie and it just completely out of nowhere um uh the yellow handkerchief and apparently this dude yoji yamada he had made a few samurai films in the past few years that were popular um the twilight samurai one of them and he had also directed a unfilmed kurosawa script called love and honor or uh, ameagaru which is i think after the rain I think is what it literally translates to. Um, really cool stuff. So this Yoji Yamada guy has this huge filmography, and apparently he really made a name for himself directing these like comedies called the uh, Torusan series about kind of like a I, I don't know. It seems like a romantic comedy type thing about this like 
Ofi guy called Torusan. There's a um, lot of those. Yeah, a whole ton of them. And if he did the bulk of them. I think he did all of them, but like a couple, mm. I guess. Um, so yeah, this little road movie just kind of opened up this Pandora's box of like really cool shit behind this uh, very prolific Japanese director. Really cool. That's, yeah. Yeah, it's... it's I'm never... I'm always surprised by how much stuff is just out there that... And so few of it gets released to the U.S. I mean, it's better, I guess, than it used to be, but I don't know with... Uh, Right, and it's just funny because, like, with Twilight Time, you know, it's like how a lot of boutique Blu-ray labels go. You go for, like, premier art house directors. And for them to hone in on this kind of, um, you know, journeyman director uh, is really cool. And also to, to dial in on these kind of, like, non-genre movies that, that he made, like this one. And the, um, there's another one they put out called The Yellow House, which is just as great. And they got a very human story. Um, it's really cool stuff. I would definitely recommend checking these out. Yeah, um, let's do one more go around. This would be a bit of a shorter episode. Um, one thing that I, I think with the, the pandemic is I try to, I used to waste a lot of time just like looking through movie selections. And now I try to force myself to make decisions quicker because I've fallen asleep before looking through yeah. Netflix or Hulu or something to pick to watch. And I... Sometimes on the, the HBO Max, interesting stuff pops up on there. I was watching some of the old Looney Tunes oh, they yeah. have nice. on the service. And and weirdly, the way they have it organized is by season, which doesn't even make sense. And not only that, like it skips around. Like it's not, I mean, of course, it's not everything. But you have like season two, season 63. Like it, the organization is kind <laughs> of meaningless. But just to see the the humor and and what you can even just to look at some of the old ones and see how Daffy Duck used to be compared, where he's quite manic uh, compared to the newer ones, where he's he's still an asshole, but he's less uh, anarchic, less chaotic. Yeah, it, it, I, I always like seeing that difference uh, back and forth with those, and um, also on the HBO Max, they have a lot of the they have all the Miyazaki stuff at the time being. And oh, nice. going through some of those is um, fun. And they even have like the, the old English dubs, which uh, I, I prefer not to watch it in English. But if I have to, but uh, Ivana likes watching it in English, so we'll, we'll do that. And, um, you know, you know, the quality on those dubs get get better over time. I, I don't recall... mind animated dubs. I, I, I just see. can't do live action film dubs. Yeah. yeah, live action is a bit can be a bit much. I recall, I, I don't think the podcast exists anymore, but um, I was a guest a few times on I Do Movies Badly. And I, oh, I was, okay, yeah, Jim Rohner? Yep, Jim, yeah, Jim Rohner is a nice guy. Uh, we, we I had him do Verhoeven, and I recommended, I think, uh, Katie Tipple to him, but it, the version he watched on Amazon was English dubbed, and I had no idea. And oh, he, it, it just sort of ruined the movie for him, because oh. it's like this really kind of cheesy voices in this uh you know it's really sort of a historical fable of sorts you know, the cinderella story in a way but um hello why don't you go with me to dinner like it, it's yeah the, the, the <laughs> hey, dub was, what are you doing over here you know right the, the dub was just really quite cheesy um but that that happens sometimes on these services i mean the thing with the streaming services i find most frustrating is on amazon prime the same movie will be listed a few different times sometimes. Yeah, that is especially annoying. And it's like, what's the difference? Or 
or lately on on Prime, they they promote stuff that costs money more. Yeah, I notice like sometimes with a lot of horror movies, you'll they'll have they'll stream um, like you said, they'll have two titles and like. I remember I watched uh, The Witch Who Came From the Sea, and they're like they'll screen the crappy public domain, you know, freaking pan and scan version, which is just abysmal. Or you can pay like three and a half bucks for the nice Arrow film release of it. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, fuck off, you know. Or it'll say recommended films you might like after you watch something, and maybe one or two you can stream on Prime if you have the subscription. But the rest right. are all stuff or that costs money, and it's for, like. Yeah. It's just I would just love to be able to dial in more specifically when I'm searching on those things. Right. And it's just very inconsistent between doing it on the phone or doing it on Apple TV or doing it on the Roku. It's, uh, you know, it's not all the same experience exactly. Yeah, and I just don't know why they just can't figure out genres more. Like, if it's, yeah. like you said, it's like, oh, if you like The Wild Bunch, then why don't you watch Driller Killer? It's like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? Well, and, <laughs> and that Netflix always recommends uh, Netflix original programming. Oh, yeah. It's like, I, you can, like, you can categorize every year by which bad movie Netflix wanted you to watch. Like, if, like, <laughs> if, like, I finished a movie and it's like, do you want to watch, like, The Ridiculous Six? Do you want to watch Bright? Do you want to watch... It's like, yeah. nah, no. <laughs> I don't want to watch, watch it the first time. Uh, yeah. Just, and, like, actually, speaking of that, those, those, like, weird algorithmically generated categories, according to Tubi, uh, which is an app I've talked up a lot, according to Tubi, the, the 1980s... Uh, Animal House ripoff King Frat is a Western, and it is, in fact, the first movie that shows up under their Western category. Yeah, that's so ridiculous. Like, is it because there's a horse in it or something? Like, I don't get it. Well, no, like, the keyword, like, even the keywords, it's like, keyword, Western. <laughs> I don't know yeah. how it got there. Maybe, like, an intern was doing it. Maybe, the, maybe it's automated, the assignment maybe. of the keywords, and could be messed up that way. I mean... Or like a, sometimes in the synopsis, it'll be like, like, oh, this like Asian film took Western audiences by storm. And it's like, you know, you type in Western, you get like Fist of Fury or something. Yeah. Or you, you see, I mean, this is more on how they license out the movies, but like the same stuff will be on different streaming services, like the, especially the, the, the lesser quality prints of the Bruce Lee movies I've been seeing pop up a lot in places or, or sometimes Amazon has like YouTube videos. It's really confusing. I can't. Yeah, that's stupid. I can't wrap my head around. It. I mean, they're not, it doesn't use the YouTube app, but it's the same kind of thing. Right. Uh, Thresh, Thresher, what's your last uh, pick? Oh, sort of right. There's watching? a lot of stuff I could talk about. I brought up a lot of stuff, both good and bad, but what I want to talk about is the most pleasant surprise I have had finding obscure stuff. And I found this on Netflix and I got to say, it is a crime that I found this by accident because <laughs> this is exactly what I want to watch all the time. Have you all heard of what about Dick? Yes. No. All right. So it, it is a, it is a stage play done in the style of a radio play written by Eric Idle. It is based around a screenplay that he tried and failed to sell for like 20 years called the remains of the piano, which is like this big merchant ivory satire he wanted to do. <laughs> but, yes. So, so it's, uh, so it hits all the merchant ivory beats and it involves the narr it's narrated. Eric Idle plays the piano who narrates the story. <laughs> Cause he's the <laughs> yeah. one constant in all the characters lives, but it stars. So in addition to Eric Idle, it's got Russell Brand, Billy Connolly, Tim Curry, Nice. Eddie Izzard and Tracy Ullman. 
Yeah, I think this might have been one of the last things Tim Curry did before he had that stroke. In, uh, I, I think it is. He's, he's very up and about uh, in this production. He plays the Reverend Whoopsie. And R- Russell Brand is in it. Did you say that? Yeah. Yeah, Russell Brand. Uh-huh. Russell Brand yep. uh, plays Dick, and he also plays. Uh, he also plays uh, Mister Bastard. <laughs> right. It's <laughs> the no, working it, class it, guy. It's a it's a delight. I've seen it. Uh, they did a, a similar kind of thing with the uh, not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy, which is a musical version of Life of Brian that for some reason Eric Idle couldn't get on the stage. So they did it as a filmed uh, reading in a similar style. Um, it, it's a shame that the original Remains of the Piano never got made. You know, Liam Neeson was going to star in it. They got the financing just oh, fell yeah. through at the last minute. Um, the Remains I, of the Piano. That's a perfect title. Yeah. <laughs> and it, and it's just so great. Like I, I like I love the one of the char- one of the characters is this uh, is this doctor from India named uh, named uh, Deepak Obi Ben Kingsley, <laughs> <laughs> who I think you could get Ben Kingsley to play him if it was a movie. I think so. Yeah. Um. It's it's quite good. I yeah. They have been featuring it on Netflix again. It. I, I'm sure it got maybe a DVD release in England or something, but it's it's just one of those. Thing. Eric Idle has really kept all these different plates spinning for so many years. Uh, I hope he does more of these sort of but, things. Like, yeah, I want I want more of this. Like if, if this yeah, was just um, like a show, if like every three months another thing like this came out, I would so be there. This is exactly what I want to see. Yeah, if they did like an Eric Idle like parody series, like a, like almost like the way documentary now does like a different documentary per episode, that would be so. Like if they did like, you know, parodying Merchant Ivory and then parodying like, you know, freaking Sam Peckinpah or something like that while they already did that. Or like parodying like a Fassbender movie. That would be great. But it's also a musical and like the music, it's great in that sort of like Eric Idle. And what's that guy he writes his music with? Oh, crap. He did the Rudel stuff, too. Um, Neil, is it Neil Innes? Yeah, well, Neil, Neil Innes, he has another he has another collaborator as well. But like it's brilliant where not only is it not only is it a brilliant parody of the type of song that would be in a musical, it is also a brilliant satire of that type of music in general, but then it's also a great song in its own right. Yeah. Like I remember like the Ruddles, it's like, it almost sounded like a little too good to be, you know what I mean? Like people were like, is this actually a parody or is this like a B side? I've never heard of with, with the Ruddles. They were taken to court over that. Yeah, That's and, hilarious. Like, and Neil Innes would perform those songs just on their own, <laughs> divorced from That's comedic great. context, and they work. Yeah, the, the Ruddles, they did um, two of them, right? But isn't the second one mainly a clip show? Well, the second one, well, I mean, the first one's a full-on rockumentary. The follow-up, uh, The Ruddles, All You Need Is Lunch, it is, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's another rockumentary that I believe is supposed to be more about the influence of the Russell Ruttles. And so it's made up half from footage that was filmed celebrity, who but not yeah. used and new footage that is filmed with modern musicians and comedians. And like, I was like Jimmy Fallon plays a car- uh, plays another guy making a documentary who it turns out is the illegitimate son of uh, Eric Idle's uh, journalist. And then they have like a reconciliation. <laughs> That's great. Got it. Yeah, that is to say, there, in that building, on the third floor. I I am a big fan of the Ruddles on Cheese and Onions. I think that's a good one. But, I I mean, they they just do such a good job of all the different styles and... uh, 
I like Shangri-La, but yeah, the cheese and onions. <laughs> a doer's never been done. Cheese and onions. C-H-E-E-S-E-O-N-I-O-N-S. <laughs> cheese and onions. <laughs> and Alex? Um, let's see. So this is a weird one that I've been trying to track down. Well, and now I'm we're just... getting to the weird ones. <laughs> I know, right? I know, this is going to be the weird one. This is actually probably the less weird of the three movies I brought up. Um, so they made it in 2010 with, um, freaking, what's his face there? Rapey Affleck, Casey Affleck, and, uh, some other guys, um, as an adaptation of the, uh, I think Jim Thompson novel, The Killer Inside Me, with, um, they made it in 76, uh, with Stacey oh. Keach, okay. and, like, I don't understand why this movie isn't a bigger deal, like, I think it's, like, it, it straddles that line between, like, uh, Grindhouse 70s, like, you know, uh, like action thriller killer movie because it's like a properly made film. It's not like a gooey B movie, but it's still like just kind of dirty. Again, like you kind of feel like you're getting away with something. And yeah, Stacy Keach. I don't know if you're familiar with the story. Plays a sheriff in a small southern town, and everyone loves him. Everyone knows him. You know, everyone knew his parents, and he does like first person narration about his background and everything. And, you know, he's got the cute girlfriend. He knows everyone in town. Everyone loves him. But, you know, he's got these homicidal tendencies. And he starts this kind of, like, masochistic relationship with a prostitute he's supposed to drive out of town. And then um, what, like, what gradually happens is that, uh, like, the son of the mayor is, like, having an affair with her. So he decides to murder them both <laughs> and try to cover mm. it up. And as it goes, he just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's just like this really like perversely, almost like subversively ironic and almost darkly comedic, but like very, very, very grim. Um, Like kind of like it's it's very psychological, but also very like literal. It's like a Freudian neo-noir almost. It's so weird. And great. And I don't understand why this isn't a big deal. And also, I don't understand, like, I like uh, like 70s Stacey Keach, like the New Centurions or um, uh, the Ninth Configuration, all these movies he was in back then. He is so great. Um, I mean, this guy is just a real powerhouse of an actor. Not that he, he slowed get, down. Yeah, and Keach can get very intense, too. I mean. Yeah. And not yeah. that he slowed down in recent years, but, like, he just has this magnetism in, the, um, in these movies back in the 70s. He's really bringing the ruckus, uh, so to speak. Um, but yeah, just the, the title was very evocative. It always stood out to me. So I would, I would, I wanted to track it down, but it wasn't streaming like anywhere. I couldn't find it. So I just bought the DVD and it's a pretty crappy print, but as of now, it's the only way to see it. Um, but yeah, the killer inside me, if not just for that title, it's a great title. I mean, it, well, I heard the name and I was like, Oh, I, I gotta see that. That sounds awesome. Um, but yeah, such a weird movie, and I think it's really ripe for rediscovery. I think this is something that demands a pretty cool boutique Blu-ray release, whether it's Shout Factory or, you know, Arrow or something like that. Yeah, and one thing I like that Shout Factory does, uh, and I have reviewed stuff for him in the past, is um, they'll sometimes do, like, double features of movies that don't really have yeah. special features, and I think it'd be ripe to do that with maybe some of the, these Stacey Keach 70s features or... You know, or it may, you know, perhaps it doesn't justify a special edition with commentaries and documentaries, but it could be a fun pair to something else or have some thematic connection. We could have it as right. a release. 
I mean, like, if you heard somebody talking about a movie called The Killer Inside Me, wouldn't you be like, wait, what was that again? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it is a good title. Um, yeah. And I guess to close this out of nowhere, this just came to mind. I thought of something cool we should cover on Sequel Cast 2 sometime. Oh. Roger Gorman produced one of these. I have to look up the name of it now because I don't remember the name. Hold on. If you describe it, I might know what it is. Um, yeah. Each movie in the series was like a... Uh, damn it. Hold on. I'll find it. It was a Dean Koontz book that I think was... Watchers. That's it. Watchers. Yeah. I've seen... I think the there's... I, I think four of them. Mark Hamill's in the fourth one. But like it's about a super intelligent dog. Among other things. Yes. And <laughs> uh, I think the original might have Corey Haim or something in it, but this got remade, remade over and over and over again. Yeah, I've heard that essentially all the sequels are just remakes of the first movie. Right. They, they just um, keep finding new ways to put a team of commandos, the super intelligent dog, and a genetically engineered monstrosity in a wilderness to attack each other. And the author of the original book, Dean Coots, apparently was very pissed off at every one of these because he dogs mean a lot to him. I guess this book meant a lot to him. And it kept on being made into a bunch of these kind of middling, uh, direct mostly direct-to-video movies. So what was it called again? Watchers. Watchers, huh? There, there, there's four of them. There's Watchers, Watchers 2. Uh, what's the third Damn it, I'm not looking on IMDb. Um, anyhow, there's four of them. Whenever I just think of any dog-themed horror or anything, I just think of uh, Man's Best Friend with Lance Henriksen. Yeah, <laughs> or like a man and his dog. Or Chomps. Yeah. A boy and his dog. Chomps. Ellison. Boy and his dog. A man, his dog. Uh, Chomps yeah. being a live-action film directed by Hanna-Barbera, uh, interestingly enough. But, um, ooh, which I have not seen this pandemic. Maybe I should now. But like I, I can't hear Dean Koontz without thinking of this gag from I think early on in Family Guy, where oh, yeah. Brian is driving a car like through Maine and like hits somebody, and he and looks down and goes, "Oh no, I ran over Stephen King." And then the person he ran over goes, "Actually, I'm Dean Koontz." And he goes, "Oh okay," and then he backs over him several times <laughs> and then drives off. I mean, Dean like, Koontz, he's. He's a good bit older than Stephen King, I think, but he started out writing like these sort of uh, erotic thrillers. He, I mean, he's done so many genres over the years and, and so many there's books. A TV movie, there was a movie, the uh, book of his that got adapted into TV. I remember what was it was like Intensity or something. I remember they advertised the living hell out of it when it came out. Yeah, um, he, had, he used um, pen names for some of these things, but I, I know Lifetime has done some of them into movies. Uh, so there you go. Um, yeah, on that note, you know, we'll see how long this pandemic goes on. But I, I do think, and we talked about this before, like with movie theaters, the genie is kind of out of the bottle and how movie theaters recover from that. I think it's going to be a bit different. I think we might see more theaters um, serve like higher priced meals you can get at the theater to make it more of an event. We'll have to see. Yeah, well, that's driving, a topic in then. its own right. Th that is. That's a separate topic. You can hear people's mouth noises even more as they eat <laughs> com more complicated meals. Uh, Get the loudest food you have. <laughs> That's well, I never understood the draft house thing where they're like, you know, you'll you'll get thrown out uh, by the scruff of your shirt if you look at your phone, but you can like chow down on barbecue ribs and 
<laughs> pulled pork sandwiches and stuff. I was like, wait, how's that more? You can eat those stealthily. It's like churros and True. nachos and things that make a lot of noise. Right. Uh, well, the thing, too, is um, well, we have some local theater. I hope it's still in business after all this is over. But when things get more back to normal, but maybe not. Uh, but they have, you know, kind of these entrees that are like 15 or $20, kind of expensive. Um, and you don't have a table to eat on. You have to balance it on your lap, which feels kind of dumb because the, the chairs are like yeah. sofas and things. They're not like if you had a, a, you should get a TV tray. Yeah. I mean, even the, yeah, I agree. (laughs) So in the future, there'll be a rental fee, I'm sure. Yes. And I mean, this is the kind of place where when you sit down, there's a sommelier that comes in and offers to sell you bottles of wine that go with your food or champagne. So it's, it's a nice experience, but it's uh, paired with a Coppola wine. Yeah. Perhaps, yeah, you could, you could. Um, so there you go. Okay, so for Sequel Cast Special, uh, this is Matt. Follow me on Twitter at MATWBT. Download episodes of the show, SequelCast2.com. Leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app. Yep, this is uh, Thrasher. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Uh, and if you want to support my work, uh, look for the At the Shrine of Authorist Kickstarter. That is O T H R Y S. Uh, I uh, am uh, doing cartography and supplemental material for that Kickstarter. And the more stretch goals you hit, the more commissions I get. And Alex? Oh, uh, you can follow me on the Twitter at CrabNebula1914. And I'm just going to throw this out there now. If you leave us a positive review on iTunes and shout out a movie title, my YouTube channel, The Trailer Project, will cover that movie. That's a Very guarantee good. from good the idea. Great, great, great. Video on demand and streaming services enable studios to distribute their films without theaters, especially during a global pandemic. And the industry was moving toward digital distribution already. Last year, it accounted for $48.7 billion and was actually the first year it overtook total revenues from theatrical releases. 